Amen. Luke chapter 10, let's begin reading in verse 25. Luke chapter 10 and verse 25. It says this, it says, On one occasion, an expert in the law stood up to test Jesus. Okay, that is to put his thinking about the law to the test. Teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? What is written in the law, Jesus replied. How do you read it? And what is Jesus saying? Jesus is saying basically, give me a summary of your understanding of the law. Meaning, this man had raised the question. Jesus says, well, give me your understanding of the law. Give me a summary of it. He answered, love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all your strength and with all your mind. That is a comprehensive love of God that is fully encompassing all of one's life. And love your neighbor as yourself. Now, Jesus says to him, you have answered correctly. And then he gives this amazing statement, do this and you will really live. Do this and you will really live. Verse 29 pushes the envelope. But he wanted to justify himself. So he asked, and who is my neighbor? Okay, now, it's a fascinating discussion that Jesus is having with this man that leads to a question that leads to one of the most familiar parables in the New Testament. So you have to get the the setup for the story. A man comes seeking to test, and you'll find out as you read through the broader broader Gospels, he's seeking to trap Jesus in a discussion about the law to demonstrate that Jesus does not really have respect for the law of God, because if he did, he wouldn't hang out with the people that he hangs out with. So there's a question about Jesus' embrace of the Old Testament Scriptures. And so he comes to test him. Jesus asks a very astute question. Give me your summary of the law. The man gives a summary that Jesus can say, you are absolutely correct. Love God passionately. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. And everything will be fine. Seeking to justify himself, to make himself look okay, he asks for a clarification. Clarification is what? Who is my neighbor? Expecting Jesus to give him a domesticated, slimmed down sphere of influence in which he had to love. Okay? So he's looking for a... He's looking for a standard that he can keep or do. Okay, give me a a definition of neighbor that I can actually accomplish. And what Jesus then goes into is a a parable, a story about self-sacrifice and love for the benefit of anyone. Okay, that's the nature of the story. Now, to lead into this discussion about the power of selfless and sacrificial living... I want to talk about a a kind of popular political topic in our culture right now. Illegal immigration. Okay? Now, I'm not going to deal with this from a political perspective. Okay? Because I understand it's a complicated issue. I have personal strong feelings on it that have nothing to do with what I'm going to say this morning in the pulpit. Okay? One of the methods for handling the problem, or one of the ways to address the problem getting any worse, has been this idea. We need to identify the magnet of illegal immigration in America. What is it in America that is attracting people to come to this country, many illegally? 
Okay, what's the, what's the magnet? If we could turn off the magnet, depower the magnet, the problem begin to come under control. Okay, that's the idea. Okay? Turn off the magnet and we'll stop getting people that shouldn't be coming. Okay? Now, for the church, here's the question. Is that the way we ever think about life? Okay, do we ever think about turning off the magnet? All right, if I get up on Sunday, it's like we got to find a, get a, a way to get people to stop coming to our church. Okay? You would say... Okay, confirmed? Okay, our suspicions and questions, but confirmed. Okay? What's the church trying to do? The church's job is to turn on the magnet, right? Church's job is to see people attracted to know God, attracted to know Him through His Son, Jesus Christ, attracted to know Him through the indwelling presence of the Holy Spirit. That's the job of the church. We don't want to turn off the magnet. Our desire is to turn on the magnet, to see people attracted into the presence of what God is doing in our midst as the body of Christ. Now, in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7, which is our launching pad for last Sunday and this Sunday, okay, what do you find? You find the church is growing. There is an increase in needs in terms of service to others. Those needs are going unmet. It creates tensions in the church. They come up with a resolution, which is called uh, deacons or the diaconate, however you want to say it, people that have the task of serving people within the church community. Okay? And as a result of that resolution of the problem, the strength of the magnet that is the body of Christ increases. So in Acts chapter 6 and verse 7 it says, after they came up with a solution to the problem, okay, it says, and many were added to the church. Okay, and you'll find this three or four times in the first six chapters of the book of Acts. As the magnet was turned on in the body of Christ, it was attractive to the world around it. Okay? The question you need to ask yourself, and that I need to ask, ask myself this morning is, is the magnet on? Is there something about my life that is fundamentally compelling and attractive because of how you and I live? Okay, the answer to whether or not the chapel of Warren Valley has the magnet on can only be answered individually. Okay, if the people that come to the chapel of Warren Valley aren't committed to a magnetic, attractive, selfless life, guess what? The magnet is turned off. Okay, but if we devote ourselves to an attractive, self-centered, or I'm sorry, yeah, that would be bad, okay? If we, if we commit ourselves to a selfless life, what happens? There is something that is phenomenally and fundamentally attractive about that kind of life. I mean, the news media lights up when there's finally a refreshing story about someone who sacrificed, who gave for the benefit of somebody in need. It just, it lights up. Why? Because we live in a world of takers. We live in a world of people that fundamentally are selfish in their orientation, who are concerned about them and theirs, and that's it. The church does not have that as an option. God wants us to be attractive. He wants there to be something that draws people in that they don't understand. But when they get near your life, they say, you know what, I know there is something fundamentally different about you. There's something about you that I want to I know, where's that coming from? What's the source of that? 
And I think one of the answers to that question, what's the source of that, 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 that presence, that power, that magnetism, that attractiveness, that is the body of Christ? And I think one of the answers to that question is, we are people who have been directed by God to love Him first, and out of that love for Him flows on the horizontal plane a love for others that is different, fundamentally different, noticeably different than how the rest of the world lives. That's what we should be known for. Now, after this man asked the question, who is my neighbor, Jesus goes into a story that all of us are very, very familiar with. It begins in verse 30. It says, in reply, Jesus said, a man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho. Now, if you're familiar with the topography of Israel as a land, you know there's the Dead Sea that's 600 feet below sea level and the city of Jerusalem that is over 1,000 feet above sea level. Okay? There's a road that goes between those two places. My recollection right now is it's 16 or 20 miles long. Okay, seriously rises in elevation, goes through a wilderness area that's uninhabited and uninhabitable because it's a desert. Okay, people would travel that road. It was called the Jericho Road. It was the means by which you went from Jericho up to Jerusalem. It's a road that Jesus Christ, a week before his crucifixion, travels with his disciples. Okay, it's the main thoroughfare. It's the interstate between Jericho and Jerusalem. A man is traveling on that road. While he's traveling on that road, which was notoriously dangerous... He falls into the hands of thieves. Those thieves beat him, rob him, and leave him. Abandoned and exposed to the elements of the day. Okay, that's the story. Alright, so this man, robbed, beaten, left. Three people are traveling the road. One is a priest. One is a Levite, who is in the Levitical order, the priestly order, works at the temple. The priest works at the local church. Okay, And then there's a man called a Samaritan. He remains unnamed. Okay, which is fascinating in the story. Okay, but he's not unknown in terms of as a commodity racially. Okay, he's a Samaritan. He is, in that culture, he's a a half-breed. He's unaccepted. He's put on the outside. And the Jews have no dealings whatsoever with Samaritans. Where do we know that from? John chapter 4, when Jesus meets a woman at the well, and what is she? She is a Samaritan. Okay, She is, in the eyes of the Jewish people, a social outcast. Someone that people do not mix with and don't spend time with. Not only because of her morality, but also because of her national origin. Okay, She is seen as someone that people do not want to spend any time with. So, what happens? All right, In this story... The priest comes, verse 31. He happened to be going down the same road, and when he saw the man, he passed by on the other side. We have no explanation as to why. Okay, except what? He sees a man, broken, beaten, robbed, registers, there's a need. What does he do? He takes option number two. Walks around at a distance and goes on his way. Why? We're not sure. He may be going to the temple to fulfill his duties at church. And so if he messes with somebody who's been beaten in that kind of state, what does he become? Ceremonially, he becomes unclean. So he chooses church over loving God and loving others. Next person comes along in verse 32. So to a Levite, when he came to the place, saw him, 
Okay, and the key here is they see each of them, all three of these people, see this man in distress, in serious need. And what do they do? Is registers, there's a need, they walk around and go the other way. Okay, verse 33 starts with a word that tells you there's a shift in the story. Okay, and by the way, the first two people, a priest and a Levite, are used as an illustration. Why? They're the religious people of the day. Okay, notice what they didn't say. I didn't say they're the Christians of the day. Okay, they're the religious people. Okay, they're the churchgoers who don't get something. Okay, and that's the point of the story. Okay, there's something about God's call that they don't understand. And they, in the story, happen to be Jewish religious leaders. A story told to a man who is seeking to do what? To self-justify. He wants Jesus to declare him good. Jesus tells a story that says, you can be religious. You can go to temple. You can go to church and not be right with God. Okay? Introduces a third individual. And by the way, the, the, the teacher of the law is listening to this. And which, which people in this story do you think he identifies with? He's, in, he's put in an inescapable place. You think you're righteous? Let's test you. Let me tell you a story about your kind. To show this man his true need. That's what Jesus is doing. Along comes a man, verse 33, who is an outcast. And you can imagine what this religious guy is thinking. Oh, this dude is going to really mess up. Okay, but what happens? It says, as he traveled, he came where the man was. Here's the, the, the point of that is simply, he's at the same place that two religious people stood and did nothing. Okay, and it, so it captures your, your attention. He came where he was. When he saw him, what happened? He felt compassion, as the way the King James says it. He took pity on him. Okay, he was, he was, but what he saw changed his day. He tossed aside his plans for the day, reoriented his life around a need that was present, and took care of this man. He went to him, he bandaged his wounds, he poured on oil and wine for cleansing purposes, he put the man on his own donkey, took him to an inn, took care of him. The next day, he took out two silver coins and gave them to the innkeeper and said, now think about this. A complete outsider who has no dealing with Jewish men is taking care of a Jewish man. And, and notice what it says. He says, look after him. And when I return, I will reimburse you for what? Any extra expense. Okay, you know, that is sacrifice. What is he saying? I don't care how much it costs to take care of this man and to meet his needs, I'm on. Okay, I throw in completely to help to be sure that this man's needs are taken care of. Then Jesus has a question for the religious man, verse 36. He says, which of these three do you think was a neighbor to the man who fell into the hands of of robbers. Okay, now let's be honest, okay? Hopefully you're not sitting there thinking. It, what is it meant to do? It's meant to shock. It's meant to be so obvious. But what does it do? It puts the religious man who hates Samaritans 
in a place where he has to give them kudos. He's got to give them an attaboy. And what has Jesus just done? He's just uncovered this man's self-righteousness. The truth of the story is what? That man that you see as a wicked Samaritan is the Christian in this story. He's the man who's loving God and therefore loving others. What's the twist? The religious people in the story are caught up in self-righteousness. They're caught up in patting their own resume. Right? And you'll remember the rich young ruler that comes to Jesus. Do you keep the law? Oh yes, Lord, I've kept the whole law. Jesus says to him, hey, I have an idea for you. Sell everything you have and come and follow me. And what does the man do? He rejects Jesus on the spot like that. Okay, now this story to me is fascinating. Because it leads to some simple, basic principles about service and how it should impact and influence our lives and how it should change us. Okay? This man's summary of the parable is this. The man who showed mercy, he kept the commandment. And Jesus says to him, go and do likewise. Why does Jesus tell the story? Why does he tell the story? You know what he wants the man to sense? He wants the man to sense his utter sinfulness apart from the help of God. He wants him to realize that his knowledge of the law had not yet changed his behavior. He was still seeking to find approval before God by his performance. Why? He was fundamentally a religious man who believed that God would accept him as a man who kept a domesticated, personally edited form of the law, which did not include love for poor people who were broken by robbers. Do you see? He says, who is my neighbor? What is Jesus saying? Anyone's your neighbor. It could be the Samaritan man. It could be the person beaten beside the road. Anyone in need is your neighbor. Why did Jesus do that? Because he knew that the religious establishment had set up a a definition for neighbor that was restricted. And what is he doing? He's ripping the fences off of that definition and he's expanding it out to humanity because what God calls us as the church to do is to love God passionately and to love our neighbors selflessly. That's what the church is. And folks, please understand this. When we start living that kind of a life, we will turn up the magnet that attracts people, that causes them to say, there is something fundamentally different about you. And I want to know what that is. All right, what are the principles that emerge out of this story? Let me just share with you a couple thoughts that emerge out of this story. If I'm going to serve Jesus in the way that Jesus himself served when he came, what's going to happen? Okay, what, what is service going to do to me? Okay, if I understand it from a biblical perspective. This, these couple of thoughts. First of all, service requires a change in how we think. Okay, it requires a change in how we think about life, about its purpose, okay, about ourselves. Because what's our tendency in the American culture? Our tendency is to think life is about me. The reason people want to come to America is because it is a land of opportunity. It is an imperfect country. Okay? But very few people are leaving this country because they can't stand it. Okay, people line up to get into this country. Okay, why? Because they see in it opportunity. Okay, it's not that they're being altruistic. 
Okay, it's not that they're being loving of others. What are they doing? They're doing what they see every American doing. They're loving themselves and they see America. And what do they see? They see a hope for a better life. And don't fault them for that at all. Okay, it's very likely, in fact, it's, let me just say it this way, I think it's probably factual that all of us are in this country because someone in our history, in our lineage, on our family tree, saw the opportunity that was America and came here to enjoy that opportunity. That this country was built in that kind of a way. What's the danger? The danger is that I can see the pursuit of pleasure, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness in the preamble to the Constitution as my fundamental way to live. It can become my mantra. It can be the reason I live and, 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 and the way I want to live. And can I suggest this to you? I don't disagree with that statement in the preamble of the Constitution. Okay? But when the desire to pursue life and personal happiness causes me to live in a way that abandons the Great Commandment and the Great Commission, okay, my patriotism has gotten in the way of obedience to Jesus. Okay? My love for America has eclipsed my love for God and others. Do you understand what I'm saying? I'm not trying to be controversial. Okay? I'm not trying to redefine the Constitution or the country we live in. I love the country we live in, in spite of its imperfections. But I do believe this. I believe the, the privileges, the, the blessings that are at our fingertips can distort and distract us from our love for God and our love for others. Okay? Because the question politically is going to be from the Republican side this time, what? Are you better off than you were four years ago, right? We guarantee it. It was the other way when it was the other way around. Okay, what's the call? You can have a better life. And if you elect so-and-so, they'll give you a better life. Is that a reason to elect someone? Okay, I mean, think about it. If I am driven by whether or not my life is better and I make my moral decisions, my family decisions, my purchases based on my happiness, I will have a skewed life from a biblical perspective. Okay, if the distribution of my resources is always about the pursuit of happiness, I'm going to live a fundamentally disappointed life because I have redefined life and said that its purpose is not to glorify God and love Him forever. I've said that the purpose of life is my happiness. Now, folks, please understand this. I think that pursuit would make me the worst father on planet Earth. Do you understand what I'm saying? It would make me the most despicable husband on the planet if I think that my life is about my happiness. Why? Because I will run over everyone who gets in, my, in the way of my pursuit of what I want out of life. Okay, if you're going to follow Jesus and really, really, in a life-changing way, love your neighbor as yourself as a result of passionate love for God, it's going to change the way you think. How did, how did Paul say it? Paul said about Jesus, he said, have this mind in you that we see in Jesus. He was in very form God. That was his right. He set that aside and came to serve. What does he say? Paul says, cultivate that mind. Cultivate a mind that is oriented not towards self, 
folks, I th- what is, it's my default mode. My default mode is what about me? Okay, what about mine? That's my default mode. If I'm not consciously rethinking and allowing God to reshape my mind according to Romans 12, 1, according to Philippians chapter 2 and verse 5, what happens? I, my default is, you're not making me happy, honey. Why are the kids acting like that and stealing my joy? Why is that person at work getting the promotion? Folks, ask yourself this. When you see other people get a blessing in their life, does it make you happy or does it frustrate you? Do you think I deserve that? Or can you say honestly and genuinely, you know what, I am genuinely happy for you. If I'm going to be the man that God wants me to be and to love like God wants me to love, it's going to require a change in how we think. And it's not that you become self-degrading. Please understand what Jesus means when he calls us to love God and to love our neighbor. Please understand what Paul means when he says, stop thinking, Philippians 2, 3, so much about yourself. Think also about others. He's not saying, as Rick Warren says, think less of ourselves, but what is he saying? Think about ourselves less. Okay, it's not, there is no help for someone in this room who is profoundly intelligent to go to the mirror and say, you are not smart. It doesn't help anybody doesn't help anybody who's gifted musically to go in the mirror and say, you're not that good at music. He's not saying, personally degrade, beat yourself up, tear yourself down. What is he saying? He's saying, think about yourself less. Think about others more. Let God rebalance your life. It's a change of thinking fundamentally that Jesus is encouraging in this text. What's the change in thinking? The change in thinking is this. Service to others is not secondary in the church to anything else. It's just part of what God has called us to do. Loving the world around us is part of what God has called us to do. Sharing the gospel of Jesus Christ with those in need is part of what God has called us to do. Those things work together. James chapter 2, James says this. He says, what good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? meaning no life change. And I think that perfectly defines the man in this story, doesn't it? Jesus is just uncovering his heart for him so that he can realize he's not as good as he thinks he is. He's pointing him to his need of grace. What good is it, my brothers, if a man claims to have faith but has no deeds? Can that kind of faith save him? Suppose a brother or sister is without clothes and daily food. If any one of you says to him, go, I wish you well, keep warm and well fed, but does nothing about his physical needs, what good is it? Does this sound familiar? The first two in the story, what did they do? They saw the need that the man had and refused to alter their daytimer that day to meet those needs. Oh, got a schedule to keep. Can't become ceremonially unclean. Got to live my life. Got to pursue my happiness first. And then if I have time, I'll come back and take care of you. Okay, the Christian life in James chapter 2 is defined as a life that is bent towards, oriented towards the needs of others. I don't want to go there. My mind, my thinking is naturally self-centered. It needs to be reprogrammed by the power of the Spirit of God to realize the absolute, fundamental preciousness of others. And I believe at a certain level, our service to others becomes a test of the genuineness of our faith 
in Jesus Christ. Secondly, I think this parable tells us that service, the kind that God desires, is about two things. Okay, and, and as I say it, I think you'll see it right in this story. Service is about what? Selfless, sacrificial service is about sensing and what? Meeting needs. Okay? In this story, how many of the people sensed the need? How many sensed the need? Sensually received that there's a need? All three. Okay? How many were affected by what they saw? One. And what was his response? His response was the response of Jesus. Seeing him, he was filled with compassion. Now, compassion is not this. It's not the all shucks, I feel so bad for you. No, compassion in this story is revealed by what? It's revealed by the, what the man did. It's re- revealed by a fundamental shift in the use of his time in that day. Here's the bottom line. If you were traveling on the interstate, what were you likely to be doing? It's very simple. I don't mean this complicated at all. If you're out on the interstate traveling, what are you probably doing? You're going somewhere. You're going to work. You're going to vacation. You're doing something. You have a plan. Okay? This happens on the interstate. It happens on the main thoroughfare. People on that road aren't out for a hike. Okay? You don't go out onto the interstate and say, what are you doing? I'm just relaxing. Okay? You have more serious problems than I have. Okay? If you go to the interstate to relax. Okay? You're on the interstate, what do you do? I got a schedule. I got a plan. I got a Why do people get into road rage? Interesting question, isn't it? You got in the way of my plans. On Route 476 in Pennsylvania, about five miles from my dad's store, a man just, a girl cut him off, and he stepped on it in his silver Dodge truck, no sled against Dodges by any stretch, caught the rear corner of her car on purpose, flipped her car, and killed her. I mean, like that. What is that? That's love of self doing what it does. It always destroys. They ended up finding the man on a surveillance camera in my dad's store. He got off the next exit, picked up his license plate at the terminal or at the toll booth, went to my dad's store and bought silver spray paint to cover his sin. Ended up finding in the computers, a picture of him at the counter buying it, the receipt, the whole thing. Why did he do it? Well, she cut me off. Profoundly sad, 21-year-old girl. Life snuffed out. Why? Because somebody got in somebody else's way. Now, let's be honest. You think that guy got in his car that morning saying, I'm going to kill somebody? Seriously, do you think that's what he did? You know what my selfishness can do? It can turn into murderous rage. That's why Jesus said this. He said, if you hate someone, what have you done? Not my words now, Jesus. He said, you're guilty of the command, thou shalt not murder. Because when you hate someone, what are you saying? I wish you weren't around. I wish I didn't have to spend any of my precious time on your lousy life. Okay, have you ever felt that way? I have. I have. Where that person's need is present. Yes, I see it, 
But if I don't have a desire born by the Spirit of God to meet that need, my sensing and seeing of that need makes no difference in anyone's life, including mine. All three sense the need. Only one acted. But can I say this to you? It would be a phenomenal blessing in this church if 33 and a third percent of people in this church caught the vision of Jesus. It would be transformational. It would be transformational if 66 and two-thirds percent said, you know what? I am tired of sitting on the sidelines of life. And folks, please understand, I am not saying get involved in our church, teach the Sunday school. I don't care if it's all done. It doesn't need to be done here. You know what God wants to do? He wants to build us up in the context of our gatherings and send us out to be the salt of the earth, to be the light of the world. People that are liberated from the fundamental pursuit of happiness as the objective of their life. People who believe that if I commit myself to the Christ life of selflessness, the joy that I desire will come as a byproduct of that pursuit. And no one will get killed or discarded. They will be loved and appreciated. It requires a fundamental shift in your thinking. It requires a decision that when I sense a need, I am not simply going to give the church-wide awe when an announcement is made on Sunday morning that someone is sick or someone this or someone that. And we all go, oh. Can I suggest that the two people in this story gave that exact response, but it made no difference in their life. Jesus calls us to better things. Okay, He calls us to be people that are known for their service, who serve and who love and who give of themselves in a way that is magnetic to the world around them. About a month ago, the car of a young lady in our church broke down. And somebody in our church called me and said, they wanted to take care of it. I said to them, would you let a few people join in with you in doing that? And they had received a little bit of extra money at work through a specific circumstance of reimbursement that they didn't expect. And they wanted to expend that money to buy this part. And I said, why don't you buy the part? But why don't you let, in this case, one group I'm involved, why don't you let the men's Bible study on Tuesday night collect the money to pay to get it installed? He called a local garage, got the guy to give us a deal on the service part of it. Men in the Bible study group collected some money. Here's the privilege I had. A need sensed, a need underway to be met. That person didn't come to me and say, can the church do something about this? That was my response would have been, and who would the church be? Like really, if I showed up here on Sunday morning and none of you were here and I said, what do you do? I pastor the chapel at Warren Valley. And I was here alone preaching to empty chairs. Right? You'd be like, okay, who is the church? It's us. That need was met. Here was the greatest joy. Somebody sensed the need. They brought it up. A number of people drew together to meet the need. And you know what a privilege I had? I had the privilege of going to the gas station, the service center, Galloway's over on the other side of uh, Shamishine, handing the money, the guy an envelope and saying, that's from our men's Bible study. Uh, they're taking care of this lady's need in the name of Christ. Okay? I want to tell you something. That is, that is a privilege. 
how does that how does that kind of opportunity come about that you have a chance to say we're doing this because of Christ? You know what it comes about? It comes about when we sense and meet needs and we change our schedule so that that need can be met because it should be met. Okay? So that's the second principle. What is ministry? What is service? What is it really about? It's not about stuff that happens here on Sunday morning. I mean, that's part of it. It's part of it, but it's not the whole picture. It's sensing needs that are out there around you and stepping up and saying, you know what? By God's grace, I'm going to get involved and help out here. He took pity, but he didn't call the pastor. He didn't call the local synagogue. He took pity on that man on the side of the road and adjusted his schedule and sacrificed of his personal resources to be sure that that man would be completely taken care of. Now think about this. The man is robbed. He has no money left. He's away from home. There is no FedEx. Okay, there's no Western Union. There's no cell phone. Nothing. He's destitute. What does the guy say? If his needs... This is the thoughtful side of service. If his needs go beyond what I'm giving you today, I'll be back. And I'll pay that debt. How beautiful is that? It's not just flicking over a couple bucks. He's like, you know what? Whatever it takes to be sure that this man is taken care of, I'm all in. Amazing. I want to tell you something. The man that Jesus is telling the story to knows nothing about that kind of love. Why? He's a religious man who has never experienced the abundance of grace flowing over his life that has set him free by the power and grace of God. Do you understand? Religion will stifle you. It will cause you to see 10% as enough. And you'll live with a, a, a rigidity in your life that will not give you any freedom to love people. Another thought that emerges, and I just said this, service is costly. And it's, folks, it's seldom convenient. It is seldom convenient to obey Jesus. Here's the challenge I give you, okay? If you're waiting until you have enough money to become generous, if you're waiting until you have enough time to serve others, here's what Jesus said. Jesus said, what you do with a little, you will do with a lot. That's what Jesus says. So maybe this morning you're thinking, yeah, things should change in my life, and one day I'll have more time. And when I do, or one day when I'm financially independent, and no one ever seems to want to define that number, but when I have enough, I'm going to become a generous man. Jesus says, what you do with a little, you do with a lot which hopefully will stop you dead in your tracks this morning and cause you to ask yourself the question in the story, which one am I? Am I the man who inconvenienced himself, canceled his plans, and had no way to let the people ahead of him know, I'm not coming? And can I suggest to you this thought, that if he could have called and they said, why are you going to be later? Why are you canceling your plans? I think this man would have said something like this. I'm doing something more important. How often do we see the great commandment and the great commission in such a way that life is all about loving God and loving others? But what do we do? We put our foot in the bear trap of selfishness thinking, I'm going to get what I want and I'll be happy. 
No, you won't. You won't. But I want to say this to you very carefully this morning. One out of three in this story did something. What he did involved him personally. He went over to the man. Folks, I don't, I don't know if you've ever been in this situation personally where you were stuck. Okay? You're in the middle of a big parking lot. There's people all over. You locked your keys in your car. You ran out of gas. All these things have happened to me. Okay? And you know what you're hoping? You're hoping you don't have to go ask. You're hoping someone walks over and says, is everything okay? And you're like, this is what I have to do because I embarrass myself so often. Like, no, everything's not okay. And I'm going to tell you what, when it's a capable person that it looks like they might be able to help you out, there is their physical proximity does what to you? It is almost like an instantaneous deliverance from your anxiety and your pain. Imagine this man beaten, laying there. Two churchgoers walk by. And the least likely person stops. He go, for this phrase, he went over to him. It's one thing to call someone on the cell phone and give them 10 seconds. It's another thing to get in your car, change your plans for the night and say, I'm coming to your house. It is what Jesus did, isn't it? He didn't see your need at a distance and try to come up with a plan. He came and advocated for you and ever lives to do what? To advocate for you. So what should motivate us? What should motivate us to selfless living, to life-altering living, to plan-changing living, to a shift in how we think, to cost? What motivates that? 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 8. Here's what it says. Just listen to this. It says, I am not compelling you. And this is Paul talking about selfless giving of your life and of your resources. He says, I am not commanding you. But I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. What makes the Good Samaritan stand out? The fact that the two religious people did nothing what makes a Christian stand out in our culture? The fact that the average person in this world is so, whatever word you want to use, selfish and self-centered and stuck in their own routine. It's not hard to stand out. But it requires a little bit of sacrifice, a little bit of change in thinking to have the mind of Christ and to begin to live it in a way that proclaims the gospel of Jesus and that completes the work that Jesus began to do and teach. Paul says, I'm not, compar- I'm not com- commanding, I'm not demanding you do this, but I want to test the sincerity of your love by comparing it with the earnestness of others. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ. Now here's the motivation. You know the grace of our Lord. That though He was rich, yet for your sakes He became poor, so that you through His poverty might become what? Rich. That to me is Amazing. So that by his poverty, you became rich. So how do others around you become rich? You impoverish yourself and serve. From your resources, from your time, from your money, from your schedule, whatever it is. Now, a couple weeks ago, I preached on the issue of service. And I felt guilty when I left. Okay? I'm going to tell you why. 
There is something in life called seasons. And I understand this. Some of you as moms, and a couple moms, didn't react to what I said, but they kind of brought their question to me nicely. Pastor, if somebody has three kids at home, six kids at home, how do they get that done? Serving others. Okay? Can I just be very direct? Okay? Your service to your kids is your service to God. Okay? Feeling guilty about the fact that you expend yourself completely in the four walls of your home is not something you should feel bad about. Okay? I want to be clear. Okay? What I'm saying is that sometimes you alter your schedule. You adjust your schedule. You adjust the reuse of your resources to be sure that you are pursuing a passionate love of God that affects and causes your life to reach out to others. Okay? That's going to look different ways in different seasons. Okay, but here's what I believe. I don't believe there should ever be a season in your life when you stop serving others and you make it about your pursuit of happiness, which is the retirement dream of America. Okay? I don't think that came from God. I'm sorry. I don't want to live my life to kick into the neutral at a certain point. And after 20 years in retirement, which is what is likely for people in my age group, I don't want to stand before God. saying I spent the last 20 years of my life making me happy. Hold me to it. It's not how I want to live my life. It's not how I want to die. Okay? I want to die doing this. Loving God. Loving others. And in the process of doing that, to realize that there is this vital link between such selfless service and the proclamation of the good news of Jesus Christ. I want to stop here this morning. I have a couple more thoughts, but let's just let's just stop here and ask God to help us to uh, process some of these things.